often vulgar, always explicit, and sometimes funny. Slap box. Slap box. Welcome to the Slapbox Podcast. This is episode 431. I am your host, Josh Albrecht. Sitting here once again, deep inside the Slapbox bunker. Hanging out as the world goes more into oblivion. Or something, you know, yeah. Pandemic rages on. And I'm just chilling out here, trying to... Stay uh, healthy and all that stuff. Um, been, uh, you know, still rocking a little Call of Duty. Yada, yada. You know, same old, same old. But uh, unfortunately, uh, I guess the big news is uh, old friend of the show and old, old regular Trebejo, who was on fairly recently, uh, his uh, parents' house... Uh, uh, over at 901 Stafford Street in uh, Washington, Missouri, uh, burnt and uh, it's like to the ground. It's it's bad. It's really bad. They bought his parents bought that house when I, he told me uh, earlier when he was one. It's a uh, it's a uh, considered a historic house actually in Washington too. It's uh, uh let's see here. Um, <clears throat> reading the I think it's the Ernst. Considered uh, the home was uh, has been included in the National Register of Historic Places maintained by the U.S. Department of the Interior and National Park Service since 2000. It's known as the Henry and Elizabeth Ernst House. It was a white and brick home that was constructed around 1873 that was uh, partially destroyed by a fire in 1892 and re- the rebuilt structure offered a model of early Missouri-German architecture and that's... Uh, off the Missourian, and uh, I spent a lot of time in that house as a uh, as an adolescent and uh, I guess child. I think the first time I went over there was oh, I'm gonna think about that. I guess I think it was about ninety one, ninety two, something like that. Trebejo and I uh, met in the sixth grade. There was uh, well. I guess technically we met before the sixth grade, uh, like in like third or fourth grade. I don't remember exactly. We did not like each other when we first met, though. Like, uh, <laughs> and uh, but then the sixth grade. But I didn't really know him that well until like the sixth grade. And, uh, <clears throat> and he was a really hyper kid. I think that maybe that's why <laughs> we didn't like really get along at first. But, like uh, he had uh, really bad. ADHD and stuff, or ADD, whatever, whatever have you. But uh, like, we're like really bad. He had he had some problems with that. Uh, I remember one story. He actually told me. Uh, I don't remember what grade it was, but he was sitting in class and he just he constantly felt like he needed attention and stuff. And he he, uh, uh, I think he told this on the podcast before, but he took a pencil and like shoved it through his his hand just. Just bam. <laughs> but I mean he was he didn't constantly do stuff like that, but he always was just acting out and he was he was a lot to handle. But uh in sixth grade I wasn't a very uh outgoing child, didn't talk a whole lot, didn't have a whole lot of friends. Uh for a long time I only had like one friend, uh Carl uh Schrader, which uh like early elementary school, that was like my only friend. Other than that, I like I would just kinda hang around my brother and like his couple of friends. And, you know, be the annoying kid. Uh, but uh, in the sixth grade, um, my uh, family uh, had moved to uh, Marthasville across the uh, river, across the Missouri River from uh, Washington, Missouri, of course. And uh, my brother and I had grown up going to the Washington School District, and we didn't want to go to, like, Marthasville School as you know, we all of our friends and stuff. You know, my one friend uh, <laughs> and my brother had several friends in Washington. We did. We just didn't really want to be new kids somewhere. It was hard enough, you know, being in school. But my parents, 
uh, well, my mom, not my, I don't think my dad really put up a bunch of fight or really gave a shit one way or the other. Uh, but, uh, <clears throat> my mom would drive my brother and I to, uh, across the river to be able to go to school in, uh, Washington. And my mom at the time had worked at the, uh, old folk, folks home, uh, Cedar Crest there up on fifth street, which, uh, at in the sixth grade, I actually went to uh, fifth street elementary school, which is now gone. Sadly, I had some awesome times in that school. That's where I, you know, that's some of my closest friends. It was at fifth street, but, uh, <clears throat> there was, uh, she, she, Cedar Crest was right next to, the uh, elementary school so my mom would drop me off there go to work and then I would go wait in her car after school was done and uh, well I should probably stop before I finish there go back a a little bit there in the 6th grade I had uh, Trebejo and I had a class together with also our our good friend Good friend Todd, who who was on the podcast years ago, and we talked about like our. I think we might have talked about how we met and stuff in there, but uh, <clears throat> we became friends. And uh, I didn't become friends with Matt until I. This was like one of the early days of that school year, and uh, I was waiting for my mom to get off work in her car. I was just sitting in her car. I don't remember how long it was. It could have been a half an hour, hour. I don't know. I just went out there. You know, it's not like I had cell phones or anything back then. It was. I'm not sure exactly what I did to keep myself busy. Probably tried to read or do some of my homework. I'm not sure what the fuck I was doing. Uh, I wasn't one to <laughs> really work on homework much, so it seems doubtful that I was working on homework. I'm not sure what I did to kill time. But uh, Trebejo, I think, had seen me out there a couple of days because he lived, uh, his parents' house is like right down the street from uh, the elementary school in Cedar Crest over on Stafford and uh <clears throat> the one day he just like he came up uh, to the car if I remember correctly I mean this is years ago and uh so like hey man I live right down the street dude you don't just want to come hang out at my house and uh I don't remember if I <laughs> wouldn't hang out hung out that day because obviously my mom would have freaked out if she would have gone out and I wasn't in the car so I would imagine I either waited for her or actually went and asked her I'm not sure but from that day on, like after school, I would just go hang out at Trebejo's house. So, I mean, right there, and like we became, you know, really uh, good friends like pretty quickly. And we, we would, uh, I would go to his house all the fucking time. And we had a mutual admiration for many things. Uh, one being, you know, like video games. And uh, there was uh, <clears throat> Todd. Uh, had he was big in video games as well and he had the super nintendo todd did whereas i had the sega genesis then trebejo had the pc and uh the only time we could play pc was like going out so each each uh person you know would have to go over to the other person's house or one of the person's house to get that other experience like if we wanted pc We'd go over and hang out at Trebejo's house and play fucking Doom, man. OG Doom and Wolfenstein. I remember Trebejo having a birthday party over there. He had some really cool birthday parties. That house, it was a really cool house. Like, I believe, it it must have been like 1982 or so when the Trebejo family uh, got that house. And I I didn't know, I, I, I think it was 91, 92 or so. When I first uh, went in there, so they had it for a while, and I believe they actually added on to the house. There was definitely a <clears throat> fairly decent sized house, and like uh, uh, it had they had some pretty cool shit in there. Like they had uh, these old pinball games and stuff, and Trebejo would have these parties, and it was like a perfect place. They had this big room, they called it, and we would go in there for these birthday parties, and like. W- it was if the big room was cleared out. Sometimes it didn't. There was a lot of stuff in the big room. We couldn't have the birthday party up there. But like I remember <laughs> them having like the pinball games out and uh, then doing. Uh, there was one year like Trebejo, uh 
we were all in the big room, and I think they had, like, mattresses on all the floors, and we were beating the shit out of each other with pillows. I mean, it was a pillow fight, but it was getting pretty violent. <laughs> we were hitting each other pretty good. And, like, one kid had asthma, and his, his friend was freaking out. He was, like, he was like, stop, he has asthma. And I, I don't know, I think he might have had, like, an asthma attack. It got a little little cray-cray. But uh, nobody died. Nobody died. Uh, we used to go up there and fucking play video games all night, just get, like, uh, the Surge. Uh, Trebejo had that stuff. I think he had bought in stock as a child in Surge, which I know had made a comeback. I don't know if it's still out on the market, but it was like Mountain Dew, but with like 10 times the amount of sugar. <laughs> it was just like straight main veining like sugar. Just, uh, but we'd get jacked on Surge and uh, root beer and maybe maybe some Dew. I don't know. Uh, there was, there was often soda there. I mean, his parents kept the place well stocked with food and soda and they would get the Schwann stuff, uh, which serves like frozen food, like delivery frozen food. And so they had the, and my favorite Schwann's was they had, uh, uh, these frozen, uh, French toast sticks. And we would have those at the Trebejo household as long as, uh, as well as, you know, many a nights with the uh, pizza rolls and such. As uh, we would spend all night gaming or or what have you, and there was I mean there was a lot going on in that house. There we had a lot of stuff, man. Is uh, I mean it's, it's shitty. Was like uh, they uh, <clears throat> they all uh, really you know love that house. Like uh, <clears throat> man, uh, that apparently what had happened. Uh, they don't as of right now know what caused the fire. It was, uh, I believe, on the back side of the house. It was somewhere on the outside is where the uh, fire originated. And uh, <clears throat> there was a lot of uh, popping and such that uh, Trebejo says he believes it was uh, ammunition. This is a father uh, liked to uh, had a few guns and such, which actually when we were kids, we used to, his dad, I don't know if he still has it, but uh, did have a, a boat that we would take out on the Missouri River and we actually go shoot guns and shit. <laughs> I keep digressing, but, man, when we would go shoot guns, they had uh, a friend of the family, Mac, that uh, was – this is the uh, this is the early 90s we're talking about. And uh, I'm, I don't even know if I'm a teenager quite yet, probably around 12 or so. <laughs> we would go out on the uh, on the Missouri River and shoot guns with them, like, and Mac would be out there with us. And with his uh, uh, four boys that he had, and they were around Trebejo and I's ages, and uh, Mac would be rocking old school speedo, nothing but the speedo. It was just his, uh, you know, Johnson, just full view. You get the whole, <laughs> the whole pick. And if I remember correctly, I don't know, it was a long time ago, but I feel like he shot the guns just in his Speedo. Maybe I'm wrong. I hope he did. Like, that just seems so very American. Uh, but, uh, so, I mean, this is the kind of craziness that I remember, like, it, it, with, that, like, that house and going out, and, like, because uh, Mac would hang out at their house and stuff. And, uh, but, yeah, apparently what happened with the fire, um, Trebejo was home. His uh, His mother was home. And uh, they had two dogs there. And this was, uh, uh, according to the paper, it says, like, about 1.42 p.m. And uh, it's, the fire started at the outside. And uh, Matt Trebejo, he had uh, had his window open and could smell what he thought was burning leaves. He thought somebody was burning leaves. He's like, what the hell, man? Why the fuck is somebody burning leaves? For one, you know, it's illegal, at least in the city limits here. And uh, he didn't have any time at all. He uh, didn't even, like, grab his phone. He actually, uh, <clears throat> from what he told me, if hopefully I remember his <laughs> story very well. I'm sure, hopefully, within the next couple of weeks, I'll get him on. He can give me a rundown, like, uh, uh, a better synopsis of what... Uh, of his story. I'm just like paraphrasing here as I try to remember everything he was telling me. But, uh, so yeah, he, uh, <clears throat> could smell the fire and, uh, I, don't, I think maybe he put shoes on. 
Uh, but uh, I mean, he. Uh, I mean, his first thought was to just get you know everybody out of the house. His uh, mom and his and their two dogs, and uh, he meant he did that. And I think he said he I believe he even ran back into the house at one point. That uh, <clears throat> to uh, get something for the dog, the one dog Barney. And uh, he said it was uh, by the time he did that, the fire was out of control in there. And his estimate, he said it took like only like 20 minutes or so for that house to just like completely burn to the ground. There was, uh, I want to say, like three fire departments that showed up. Uh, Like if you go to, like there's, let's see here, the Missourian. Let's have some shit on it here. Uh, says the here it says uh, the fire chief uh, Tim Frankenberg said the body of the fire was so hot that first responders had to take a defensive approach first in order to knock the flames down. They transitioned to an offensive tactic, getting firefighters inside the structure to further quell the flames. Uh, witnesses at the scene described hearing a popping noise. What sounded like small explosions while the fire was raging. Uh, according to this, it says we're not exactly sure what it was. Uh, it could be a number of things. An investigation is planned to determine the exact cause of the fire and the popping noise. Uh, but th- you know, if it was ammunition, I mean that. Thankfully, nobody nobody got hurt. <laughs> you know, I I don't know if that was ammunition or not, but you know, he, he owned a few guns. Uh, but uh, one do I'm trying to see about uh, how many of the uh, see there was. Mm-hmm. Let's see here. It does say uh, according to the home's application, it retains a good deal of historic fabric. The original form and patterns of fenestration are largely intact and from the street the house appears today as much uh, the I don't think that's talking about after the fire um, <laughs> okay here we go assisting the Washington Fil- Volunteer Fire Company was the Marthasville Volunteer Fire Department the Bulls Fire Protection District Washington Police Department and Washington Ambulance District so it was pretty packed over there. Then the Union Fire Protection District did a move up and was on standby at Washington Fire Headquarters. So man, they had had quite the help, man. Uh, <clears throat> but yeah, you know everybody's alive, and uh, they were able to uh, salvage some things. Uh, his father, uh, like his, you know, thing he was really concerned about was like his camera and he takes he's always taking a lot of pictures of stuff and uh <clears throat> thankfully he was able to recover one of his cameras and uh Trebejo was telling me they were able to get some uh hard drives and so they should be able to save a lot of the pictures and stuff he took through the years and he said it was weird like you know some of the stuff just completely untouched with fire but if I mean, if you, uh, I drew, I didn't like get out of the car or anything but I drove by it earlier and uh, I mean the there's some walls I guess the where the where the brick was that like survived but it's like there's just like the inside just seems like it's just like gone <laughs> like it's amazing that they were able to uh hold on to some of that stuff as uh I mean, there's just a lot of damage to that house. It's it's rather sad. Um, but I mean, if you know Trebejo or his family and such, as you're if you're listening to this, um, that people have been uh, donating gift cards uh, to help them out uh, there at their uh, shop, the Carriage Care up on uh, Fifth Street. That uh, you can. They have a key slot for dropping off keys when you get your car maintenance done, and people have been dropping uh, gift cards and such in there. I know that when I went, I don't think it was too long after that idea was uh, put online, and I think I saw like three or four envelopes. Hopefully, uh, 
I think there's going to be a decent amount of people uh, helping them out. So hopefully, I mean, it's. I, I got the impression there was going to be a lot of people as far as the reaction online and such. And I know people at work, people that I don't even think uh, know them were, you know, talking about the fire and such. I mean, it's just, it's such a bad fire that everybody in town, you know, heard about it. I mean, you don't have that many fire trucks and such uh, around without people knowing that something really bad there happened. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, hopefully, uh, <coughs> hopefully the things turn out better for him here soon. But the uh, but there's definitely, from when I, when I talked to Trebejo, he was in good spirits, all things considered. Um, he did lose his phone in the fire, and uh, he's been using his mother's cell phone. So, and he was he was at the AT and T store when I was there earlier, actually. I was uh, upgrading my phone. I should be getting the uh, iPhone 12 Pro. And uh camera on that looks pretty awesome. Got the telephoto lens. I'm excited for that. Because I'm just, you know, hiding out in my room most days. <laughs> but, uh, <clears throat> but, yeah, that's that. Uh, other than that, you know, I've been still rocking some Call of Duty. Uh... I know that uh, I've been watched a few shows on Netflix. I did get around to watching The Queen's Gambit about uh, the fictional chess player um, uh, uh, Elizabeth Harmon. That's the character's name. I almost looked it up and then I was like, "Oh, it came back to me." Uh, that was that was a good one. I liked the uh, Queen's Gambit, and uh, they did have. Uh, World Chess Champion Gary Kasparov as a advisor, I guess you want to consider it for the show. So I mean, they had legit chess players uh, helping them along the way with the show. So uh, I feel like, I mean, it's an entertaining show. So, but I, I hope that's what how exciting chess is. It seemed exciting as <laughs> to that. It made me like, ooh, I should get into chess. But I'm like, no. No, I'm a little too old for that. I'm <laughs> I'm into too much shit. <laughs> I don't have time to become a chess grand grandmaster. It's just not going to happen. Uh <laughs> But uh yeah, it's it's a good show and also I did get around to seeing uh which I guess they just released on Netflix, but I believe it's season 9. I think it's 9 of American Horror Story. It's the 1984. It's the uh, slasher flick that just comes right out of uh, Friday the 13th. And uh, I'd say from the last, like, four or five seasons, it's, like, the better of... It's not the be- I wouldn't say it's the best American Horror Story season. Like, I wouldn't... For me, personally, I'd go Freak Show or Asylum. I know a lot of people would not fans of Asylum. I like the Asylum. I was a fan of that. And uh, I did enjoy the Freak Show. A lot of people I know seem to really like that first season more than anything else. Or the uh, Coven, <clears throat> but uh, yeah, I did like the I did like the uh, 1984 as uh, they had. Uh, I mean, they even had pr- pretty much Jason. They had the Friday the 13th uh, part. Spoiler alert: It's near the end. They have uh, a kid coming out of the lake and pulling somebody in, just like in the original Friday the 13th. And his mother was crazy killer, so. Though, yeah, they didn't go full Jason with it. I don't know about having, like, Richard Ramirez in there. I feel like they don't really need to throw in, like, real serial killers. You know, at least with, like, the older seasons, uh, the hotel one, the the killer killer that they used, you know, has been dead for a long time, so the, like, victims' families can't get too upset about it. I feel like uh, <laughs> when you do that with, like, Richard Ramirez and stuff, the victims' families are most likely still alive, or at least several of them are. That's It's kind of weird to, to, to do that, you know. That's why you should do, only do fictional murderers, you know. Uh, 
It's not bad though. I, I, you know, I'm a fan for cheesy '80s things, so it was nice to get the '80s music and uh, Kaja Goo Goo. You know, Billy Idol. It does have a, a decent uh, soundtrack to it. Ah. And of course, uh, Mandalorian is uh, was it season episode four? I think this is the one that just happened, and we get like a glimpse of what could could possibly be the origin of Snoke, or maybe the Palpatine clone. Is weird. Maybe get a glimpse that we're gonna find out why that they were using going after the child, as it were, the baby Yoda, to uh, get the uh, DNA from the Metaclorians as the. Uh, as they're often referred to in the uh, Star Wars uh, universe. And apparently, I missed it. I'm going to have to go back and watch it again, but there's a shot where there's a... You can see uh, a crew member (laughs) in the back. Uh, But, uh... And you get uh, Baby Yoda stealing some kid's food in it. Spoiler alert in this one. Rumor I've heard today at work uh, for somebody that's a fan of the Mandalorian that uh, he's heard that uh, next episode should be when we finally see uh, Ahsoka Tano, Ahsoka Tano, because uh, uh, Dave Filoni is uh, directing that one, which Dave Filoni correct uh, created Ahsoka and like Clone Wars and all that. They say that's why. There's the thought that perhaps she's going to be in the next one because he, you know, Dave Filoni should be the first one to uh, to do <coughs> Ahsoka on uh, live action. So perhaps, perhaps we'll see that. Hopefully, it's not like Force Awakens where we've been waiting. Like, oh, what is Luke? I got to see Luke. I finally get to see Luke. And here's the last five seconds. There she is, and we're over. <laughs> like what they did with Boba Fett the other episode. I thought maybe we'd get a little glimpse of Boba. Again, that is, you know. But no, no, no. There's only eight episodes, man. Like, how much more are they going to drag drag their feet here? <laughs> like, Give us a little bit more. Come on. And there were some good parts to this last episode, and it was directed by Carl Weathers. Love me some Carl Weathers. He was a fucking predator, man. He played Dylan. <laughs> As a my favorite part <laughs> of him in uh, in the original Predator is him and Arnold when they like do just grab uh, hands and just like squeeze the fucking biceps and you can just see the veins popping out of both their arms. It was just something cheesy 80s stuff right there and just like, yeah, fuck <laughs> Look at that vein pop. Look at it. Look at it. <laughs> fucking Carl Weathers, man. That was, uh, I guess, after he played Apollo Creed. So, you know, he's in some good shape then. I love some uh, Carl Weathers. There's there's a good spot or good <laughs> a humorous spot or bleh, part <laughs> on this latest episode of Mandalorian. Uh, <clears throat> that uh, where uh, Mando's trying to uh, get Baby Yoda to fix part of the ship and it do- it doesn't go well. Uh, you'd think a fifty year old would take directions more but apparently not apparently not this 50 year old this child is uh is uh not not so great at uh communicating I feel like he's making a come around like in another 100 or two, 200 years like he might be able to to converse with Din Djarin but I feel like Din Djarin's gonna be dead unless maybe he freezes himself in carbonite uh <laughs> maybe we'll see of Mace Windu I, I did see some like uh, a Star Wars theory thing, thing that uh, in a, a caption on a YouTube video that perhaps we'd see Mace Windu, but I didn't click on it. I didn't uh, fall for the clickbait, as uh, for some reason I can't stop yawning. 
damn it. Oh, that's rough. Rough, 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 rough. Mm. Oh, and with my upgrade of uh, the phone and my pop filter won't stay up now. Um, with the upgrade, I now get free HBO Max. So I got that going for me here. And uh, damn it, this thing will not stay up. <laughs> uh so I can watch stuff like Westworld, and uh, I believe there was some documentaries I wanted to check out on there. Oh, and uh, Catherine the Great, that one I really wanted to check out, where it's uh, Helen Mirren playing Catherine the Great. And uh, <laughs> damn it, this thing is... I have to take this off and uh, <laughs> try to stay talking. Maybe I'll just hold it in my hand as I, I don't want to get... Nowadays with COVID, I don't want to fuck up my... Get spit. I mean, spit's not good for microphones anyway, but it seems highly, you know, uh, yeah. <laughs> Don't get my germs all over the shit. I think this, ooh, I think this will hold it up. Maybe this, this might, ugh. Sorry for the audio. There's, uh, shit. There we go. I think, it think it's going to stay. All right. I can stop fucking with it now. Um, yeah, totally lost my uh, train of thought there. Uh, <laughs> Din Djarin stuff. Um, hmm, I still haven't... Uh, I'm still waiting on the potentiometers and wires from uh, to come in from uh, New York City. New York City! My Les Paul, I'm still uh, excited... To work on that a bit, but uh, no such luck. No such luck. There is the uh, warning about uh, being short-staffed on their website, of course, uh, due to COVID. Uh, that uh, I did order. I believe I talked it on this before, but Dark Moon. Dot NYC is uh, who I ordered this uh, wiring harness, harness or pre-wired uh, kit. Yeah, it's a wiring harness. That's what they consider it for a humbucker kit for. Uh, Les Paul. It, I have watched uh, several videos where they've uh, used their uh, <coughs> pickups in uh, builds. There's a a super strat build that I had seen. Um, uh, see if I can fucking find that build. Uh, no. <laughs> There's a, damn it. I know there's a fucking video of it there. I can't remember the name of the YouTuber. Because that's, YouTube is where I found out about this company to begin with. And, damn it. Uh... Not under merch. <laughs> Maybe we got a uh, pickups right here. I feel like uh shit. It was one of these. It was this Death Valley one. That one. Oh here we go. Here it is. Okay. It is uh what is this fellow's name? Some good sounding stuff. It, damn it. Oh, here we go. Daryl Braun. He made a uh, build of a suit. Oh, this is the one I want. Not that one. Made this uh, super strat that he built. And it's a, it's a beautiful looking guitar. It's this black stain on it. And uh, uh, the name of the was it Abalone inlay that they have there? Because you can on these pickups, you can have a lot of different uh, choice. Abalonoid. I don't know. I guess that's how you say that. Um. <coughs> there we go. They had yeah. They've got a lot of different options here. There's a. Uh, 
zebra. I mean, you can go with like you know uncovered where it's got like the zebra pickup, black nickel. Ooh, that looks pretty sharp. Like the black nickel, celluloid pearl. There's a mother of pearl. Shouldn't look that different from the celluloid. Um, gold mother of pearl. I like that. That looks sharp. That's good stuff. If I do buy pickups from there, I might go with gold. I got the uh, black Strat with the or Strat. I mean uh, Les Paul that I would put that in, and it did have a uh, gold uh, hardware to it anyway. So that gold mother of pearl might look pretty nice. It's, uh... Though I thought about seeing if I could, because you they'll do custom stuff, like get more custom. If I if you uh, I don't know what they charge for it, but uh, if you pick something that's not like a selection on here, I thought about doing like a green celluloid. See if they would do that. I like. I'm a big fan of green. My favorite cover and all. Co- cover? Color. <laughs> Holy shit. I am I'm running on empty tonight. It's uh it's a little rough. Uh man, this gold mother of pearl, that looks fantastic. Uh yeah. But they have they have quite the uh nice pickup selection. I like the the tones that they get out of that. You can actually suggest, like, email them and uh, tell them, like, what kind of sound you're going for. And I thought about uh, if I were to get pickups from them, I'd maybe try to go for an Adam Jones kind of kind of sound, some tool. Get in there with that. Uh, he uses the Duncan Distortion. I think it's the DDJ, whatever, uh, pickup for his uh, his bridge pickup. That's his main pickup that he uses. The other one is like a pro bucker or something. I don't remember what it is. It's uh, I think it's just a some form of Gibson humbucker. Mm. And uh, man, speaking of guitars, I've been still just been watching a lot of YouTube videos on uh, different people on, with uh, guitar channels. And there's this. Uh, let me pull it up. See what the biggest most people will pay for this, but. It's a very rare uh, guitar, and uh, it goes for a lot of money. Because uh, I saw Trogley's uh, rare guitars. He's a Trogley's uh, YouTuber, and uh, he's got buys and sells uh, rare guitars. And he got screwed one time by buying a fake uh, slash snake pit guitar. And uh, if you even look at the original. Like Slash has one. There was only a few of them ever made. Now the body on this thing, it is a, uh, I believe it was a Gibson. Yeah, it's a Gibson Les Paul. And uh, damn, I'm trying to get a zoomed in uh, shot of this so I can describe it a little bit better. It's a. Uh, is that a quilted maple? I don't, know, I don't know if that's a quilted maple or well, I guess that maybe that'd be a flame top maple um but it's a nice looking body to it uh this with the red stain and i i like the snake the slash logo with the snake on the guitar body but what i don't like is they got on this uh (laughs) this fretboard there's this inlay of a cobra on it i think that looks like total shit (laughs) i like a lot of good inlays on guitars but I don't know. Maybe in person, this thing would look a lot better. They did some kind of snake-looking thing with the Gibson logo on the headstock as well. But uh, there's, <clears throat> I'm not really fond of the uh, OG like uh, Gibson tuners as well. I like uh, the Grover tuners, which uh, I had installed uh, from the factory on my. Uh, Epiphone Dove Pro and I installed Gibson locking tuners or not Gibson, uh, Gro- Grover locking tuners on uh, on my Les Paul too so that, w- that was fun you know, I uh, <laughs> drill had to drill new holes into that headstock it was perhaps a little nerve wracking 
Here's Slash playing that guitar. Uh, well, I was going. Oh yeah, I was going to look up prices of that thing. That thing is way, way too much. Like again, I like the body, but damn. Uh, according to Reverb.com, there's uh, I don't know if it's still. Well, I guess you can still make an offer. This is uh, ninety-seven. This came out too. Um, there's one on there that says it's very good for ninety nine thousand and five hundred dollars, so not quite a hundred grand. It says it's in very good condition. I would fucking hope so for almost a hundred grand. Uh, I don't know how many of these things were made, but they really should have done a better job with that inlay, man. That is the thing that drives me the craziest about that guitar. Like, why is it? Uh, <laughs> why does it cost so damn much? I'd love to get a green burst on a guitar. Like get like uh I've seen uh, like one cool one uh iguana burst that was pretty tight. But some of those don't end up looking so hot, but they got one here on reverb. It's only only thirty seven hundred. <laughs> the emerald green. Uh it looks pretty nice. Um like the most expensive guitars. <laughs> I don't I don't think I could ever play a guitar that was worth like a hundred grand. <laughs> I felt weird at first playing on my new strat, the uh Tom Morello strat that was uh <clears throat> that was twelve hundred dollars. Or about thirteen. Thirteen hundred I guess. Oh holy hell. Okay, this is uh it's a blog. I don't know how accurate this would be, but this is on GAC dot co.uk this is the uh, this is a 2016 article top 10 most expensive guitars Uh, there are not many collectibles in the world that are as cool as guitars they're flawless and practical works of art that inspire players and music fans all around the world I'm sure you're already acutely aware of the guitar's signature status as a cultural icon but Beyond good memories of the Beatles or Hendrix at Woodstock, some guitars are investments. Can you guess how much someone is willing to pay for a famous guitar? We've compiled a list of the top 10 most expensive guitars sold at auction. Let's get started. Uh, The Brownie Stratocaster, which was uh, Eric Clapton's. And he played with the Derek and the Dominoes uh, sold for $450,000. Uh, it's the uh, Layla guitar. Need we say more? Uh, 56 Strat. It was uh, with Clapton during Cream briefly and Derek and the Dominoes and now resides at Paul Allen's Experience Music Project in Seattle, Washington, of course. One of the founders of co- co-founders of fucking Microsoft, <laughs> Paul Allen. Also owns the Seattle Seahawks. Fucker's got Eric Clapton's guitar. <laughs> and then number nine here is the Gold Leaf Stratocaster. Again, Eric Clapton. Man, that Gold Leaf looks nice. It looks like 455000 looks like it's just straight up gold. Uh, another Clapton guitar on the list. The Gold Leaf Strat was built for Clapton by Fender's master builder, Mark Kendrick. Reportedly, Clapton wanted a guitar he could hang in a museum. Clapton used it on the 97 Legends Tour and again in 2001, after which it was sold to Christie's Auction House. As, uh, <laughs> oh, man, I think he's got the noiseless uh, pickups on there, which I've got the two noiseless pic- pickups on uh, that Morello Strat. Uh, number eight here is the Gibson SG. George Harrison and John Lennon. Uh, played this guitar five hundred and seventy thousand dollars. That's a that's a nice SG with the tremolo on there. Don't really see the need of a tremolo on an SG. But uh, this guitar was used by both Harrison and Lennon between sixty six and sixty nine, making appearances on Revolver and the White Album. Yeah, I could see paying five hundred seventy grand for that. Number seven here's Fender Strat to the Stevie Ray Vaughns. Six hundred and twenty-three thousand five hundred. Whew. Uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan's Strat Stratocaster Lenny was named after his wife, who pro- bought him 
this circa 65 strat for his birthday in 1980 after Stevie died in a helicopter crash in 1990. Stevie's brother Jimmy donated the guitar, which was auctioned off and sold to Guitar Center. Really? Guitar Center bought that? I heard they just declared bankruptcy recently. Fun fact. Um, the, another Clapton one, number six here, a 1939 CF Martin uh, sold for 791500 uh, he was clapped in experience and resurfaced in 92 after the release of the hit ballad Tears in Heaven. Uh, Clapton performed an all-acoustic set on MTV Unplugged using the guitar, which he auctioned off to raise money for the Crossroads Rehabilitation Center. I believe he also wrote that song about uh, his son, was it, that died? Um, <clears throat> 1964 Gibson ES335, another Clapton was uh, number five for 847500 Jesus, man, it's like all Eric Clapton for the most part. Uh, this was used during his period with the Yardbirds, Cream, Blind Faith, and John Mayall's Blues Breakers. It was auctioned off in 2004 at Christie's. Then there's the Blackie Strat at number four. Again, Clapton, just shy of a million, 959,000. Uh, this one, this one's pretty cool. Finally, somebody else's. It's uh number three is a Washburn. Uh, oh, by, before I get to that, Blackie, of course, is Clapton's most iconic guitar. As his story goes, Clapton bought six Strats in a guitar shop in Texas. He then gave three away to Harrison Townsend and Winwood, and pulled apart the other three out to build Blackie, the guitar he used for the next fifteen years. Many of his guitars, Clapton auctioned the instrument to raise money for the Crossroads Rehab Center. Uh, this Washburn was interesting. The Bob Marley valued at 1.2 mil. <laughs> uh, Marley didn't own many guitars. An exact number is not officially known. This Washburn, the Washburn, became his infamous instrument. Uh, supposedly one of the the first electric Washburn guitars ever made. Marley rarely played the Washburn and gave it to his guitar tech Gary Carlson. The guitar has been classed as a national treasure by the Jamaican government. <clears throat> and then, uh, here we go. The uh, number two, which is one I was like, oh, hell yeah. Was, uh, I used to be a big fan of this fella. And uh, 68, the this is a 68 Fender Strat uh, owned by Jimi Hendrix, valued at $2 million. The iconic guitar is one that Hendrix famously played at Woodstock. Paul Allen again. <laughs> Fucking Paul Allen. Paid $2 million for it to be placed at the Experience Music Project in Seattle, Jimi Hendrix's hometown, which I guess is cool. It's a museum thing. Wouldn't mind checking that place out. Uh, <clears throat> I love the headstock on that thing, the old 60s headstock. Uh, the number one is the Reach Out to Asia Strat at value two. Point seven million dollars to help raise money for relief efforts to the 2004 tsunami. A signed Fender Strat was auctioned off, and it wasn't signed by just anybody. I would fucking hope for that kind of money. Uh, this guitar features the signatures of legends such as Clapton, uh, Keith Richards, Mick Jagger, Ronnie Wood, Brian May, David Gilmore, Jimmy Page, Jeff Beck, Mark Knopfler, Pete Townsend, Tony Iommi, nice Angus Young, Malcolm Young, Sting. Richie Blackmore, members of Def Leppard. <laughs> what? Brian Adams, Liam Gallagher, and Paul McCartney. The guitar raised almost $3 million for the Reach Out to Asia, a charity formed to help victims of the tsunami. I wonder what the specs are. I feel like, I mean, it's, it doesn't look like a squire, but I would hope, I wonder if it, like, plays good. That would be shitty to, like, <laughs> not that, I don't know, anybody would want to play that. This is probably something you just fucking hang on a wall, but... <laughs> I would uh, I would be interested to see like how how good that is. Did they really just take like a really shitty uh, guitar and put some really awesome signatures on there? I mean, it was all for charity, so. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking at another article, and yeah, it's still most of these are just Eric Clapton's guitars. Oh, this here's one on this other list. This is on Loudwire. Jerry Garcia's Tiger guitar, which is an interesting looking guitar. Uh, 
almost a million, 957,500. Hmm. A custom creation from the uh, late guitarist career with Grateful Dead. Called the Tiger Guitar, designed by guitar maker Doug Irvin. Irwin, and it was a crucial part of Garcia's gear arsenal for a period. Yeah, that's just all, just a lot of fucking, oh, there's a Keith Richards one on here too for like a, a, a million, you know, 1959 Les Paul. So why not? And uh, it's more Mar- Marley. I guess that's his Washburn again. Oh man, Garcia's uh, got another one on here, this Wolf guitar. That thing looks pretty sharp. I like the Wolf on there. Hmm. <clears throat> There's a, oh man, yeah, John Lennon's Gibson J160E Acoustic Electric. That is a fantastic one, 2.4 mil. That would be a good one. Still with the, uh, oh, David Gilmore, they sold for 3.9 million. Man, it's Blackstrat. That's, that's, uh, and, oh, wow, wow. Kurt Cobain's unplugged guitar, $6 million. <laughs> the guitar that sold the world, they say. Uh, the sale of Kurt Cobain's left-handed acoustic electric model uh, that the late grunge icon used on MTV Unplugged raised the bar for guitar prices won at auction. It went for a whopping $6.01 million in June at Julian's auctions. With that, it's now clearly become the most expensive guitar of all time. I think it's an awesome guitar. It is a Martin. And, uh... Wow. It look yeah, the thing just looks crazy. The pickups and shit on it, it's fantastic. It's a one of a kind guitar. I would like to know more about that. I will have to Google search that guitar. That that is one of my favorite albums of all time. Is that Nirvana Unplugged? Like it's just so good, and uh, they just. I don't think there's a track on there I, I don't really like. I mean, I love the Plateau and uh, the David Bowie cover, uh, The Man Who Sold the World. Uh, <clears throat> damn it. I'm getting... Uh, just want to know about the guitar. Um, let's see if I get some more info about that. Man. It's a fantastic thing. Um this is on BBC News or BBC.com, what have you. Uh, says Cobain played the retro acoustic electric 59 Martin D18E during a legendary, and I mean legendary, MTV Unplugged performance in 93. Just five months before he died. Uh, most expensive sold. Yeah, yeah. I want to know the history. I want in that album he talks about getting uh, Lead Belly's. I think it was Lead Belly's guitar that he's talking about. Tried to get David uh, Geffen to get Lead Belly's guitar. I guess maybe that wasn't Lead, uh, Lead Belly's guitar. But, um, <clears throat> yeah, it doesn't really talk about where he got the uh, album from. It's really interesting. Like that. I mean, that was like even before. Cobain used it on that album. I'm sure it was, uh, <clears throat> I'm sure that, uh, here, damn it. I want to find like the history on it. I mean, it was a 59 Martin. It was probably a pricey guitar, nowhere near $6 million, but it was a fairly pricey. Like, uh, point I was getting at Kirk Cobain actually, uh, a lot of this stuff was not very expensive. He was known to go to uh, pawn shops and f- like flea markets and stuff to get like pedals. And a lot of times it's hard to match their tone because it's. He would just find these cheap, obscure pedals <laughs> that were probably like one-offs that we he would find just like scrounging places. Um, <clears throat> so it's crazy that he would have like such a nice like acoustic. Uh, Hmm. Do do do. Uh. Let's see here. The rare, yeah. 
Martin guitar is listed with a number of other items, once owned by Nirvana frontman. Uh, this important guitar has earned its rightful place in rock and roll history as the instrument played by one of rock's most influential musicians and icons in one of the greatest and most memorable live performances of all time. So Darian, Darren Julian, president of Julian's Auctions, press release, yada yada. Uh, the guitar was previously owned by Cobain's daughter, Frances Bean Cobain, who reportedly gave it up during an acrimonious divorce from her former husband, musician Isaiah Silva. Even without the fame of its former owner, the guitar is one of only 302 D18Es made by the Martin Guitar Company, which has been making instruments for some of the world's best musicians since 1833. Uh, Cobain customized the guitar, adding a Bartolini pickup to the sound hole, according to a statement from Julian's Auctions. He also decorated the hard shell case that is included in the lot with a flyer from the Poison Idea's 1990 album Feel the Darkness. Three baggage claim stubs are still stuck to the handle, the statement added. The case also includes half a pack of Martin guitar strings, uh, three guitar picks, and a suede stash bag decorated with a miniature silver spoon, fork, and knife. Uh, Cobain achieved legendary status. Yeah, okay. Nirvana, okay. So I'm going to know more about possibly the history of the guitar. Um, <laughs> do, do, do. Oh, it's talking about uh, during the... Okay, MTV plug, Unplugged in New York also reached number one soon after its release in 94. During the set, Nova Selleck joked that there was a donation basket going around to raise the funds to buy a guitar that once belonged to Cobain's favorite performer. Uh, oh, was, uh, yeah. Uh, Hootie William Ledbetter. I was thinking it's Lead Belly, but no, it's Lead Better. Uh, better. Oh yeah, Lead Belly. That is Lead Belly. Better known as Lead Belly. <laughs> Lead Belly was an American folk blues singer and songwriter, famed for his mastery of the twelve-string guitar. He died in 1949. Cobain told the MTV studio audience he'd been approached about buying Lead Belly's guitar for five hundred thousand dollars. The audience laughed, presumably at the astronomical cost. I even asked. Uh, <laughs> David Geffen Records uh, boss David Geffen personally if he'd buy it for me he wouldn't do it Cobain said before launching into Nirvana's cover of Lead Belly's Where Did You Sleep Last Night which is a great cover by the way Uh, Cobain's own guitar sold should sell for a lot more than $500,000 oh yeah this is before they sold it sold for 6 million man it sold for a fuck done more hmm I don't think he ever got that lead belly guitar. I bet if he had lived another six months, he probably could have gotten that guitar. No, fucker. Had to go and die. But, uh, man, that is that is a great album. Actually, I was, uh, the Foo Fighters were doing a show uh, recently to uh, benefit the Troubadour. I know that uh, the pandemic, unfortunately, has already closed a lot of uh, music establishments and such, because uh, they don't, you know, people aren't going to see live music, and so these, like, smaller places, smaller venues are having to close up shop. They don't uh, have the funds to keep going. There's, uh, they're struggling, and uh, musicians have tried to band together to uh, raise money to help keep these places open. Um, like, they have yet to really receive any support from the government, and, uh, you know, it's, it's a sad thing. But uh, they had a uh, the Foo Fighters were one of the bands that were performing to, for a benefit to uh, help the Troubadour and uh, these other venues. And Dave Grohl is trying to shoot the shit. Like, there's no crowd, really, so it's just, like, the band up on a stage. And uh, he's talking about, like, his first experiences at uh, the Troubadour, and he's talking to Pat Schmier. And, damn it, I'm going to have to find this. Um, on, on the YouTubes. Uh, Foo Fighters. But Pat Schmier's story of... Uh, <laughs> of talking about being at the Troubadour, like seeing his first show. Um
is uh is pretty funny and uh he, Pat Schmier obviously does not like who who also fun fact was in Nirvana uh with uh Dave Grohl I don't know if I got the right story or right spot here. Oh, damn it. No. Let's see here. Uh, <clears throat> damn it. I don't know if it's... Uh, <laughs> Maybe it's at the beginning. Hopefully it's at the beginning. Damn it. No, not what I wanted. No, not you guys. Just us applauding ourselves. Uh. Yeah, I don't know if I'm gonna have any shot of like finding it. I thought maybe somebody like would put something in the comments to let me know <laughs> where the story was, but I'll just say it. Like, uh, <clears throat> this was a. Uh, Oh, here we go. There's here's a replies. Uh, there's uh No, it do, doesn't say when, what the time lapse part of the story is. Damn it. I wish I would have gotten this ready in, in advance. But it... Uh, he's going around talking to the other band members about their experiences at the Troubadour, like first experiences. And he's like... He's like, have you ever played... Pat, have you ever played the Troubadour? And he's like... He clearly didn't want to talk. He's like, yeah, with you, <laughs> asshole. <laughs> and then uh, Dave Grohl finally, like, asked him, like, was, like uh, which apparently Dave Grohl was unfamiliar with the story. But, uh, yeah, if you just look at Foo Fighters Live from the Troubadour, they've got a set uh, for this uh, here. And uh, you can watch the whole thing. It's like 33 minutes. I uh, have no luck trying to find the story there. But. Uh, finally, Pat Schmears gets to talking about his first show that he saw at the Troubadour, and it was a go-go show. <laughs> and he said a riot broke out at the go-go show. It was, uh... <laughs> like, of all shows, a fucking go-go show, a riot breaks out. And, uh, it still, like, Pat Schmier just doesn't want to tell the story. And, uh, you know, first they're laughing that, like, his first show, he went to see the Go-Go's. But, like, also, like, that a riot broke out at the Go-Go's show. Like, I wonder what song did it. Was it Vacation? Our Lips Are Sealed? What was the one where, like, we got a fucking riot? Were, were they not going to play Vacation? Like, what <laughs> what transpired? He doesn't get into that, how this riot started. Uh, and, uh... He then said he got into a fight with uh, Tom Waits, the musician Tom Waits. And, oh, Tom Waits. Like, damn it, now i got to look up Tom Waits. There's a, uh, like, just get it. If you're unfamiliar with Tom Waits, you got to hear some Tom Waits for a second. Like, he's just got that voice. Like, damn it. Is that Johnny Cash? There's a... Uh, here. I'm shining like a new dawn. He's been in a few movies. Got a very distinct voice, but I mean, he's a weird, kind of weird guy. <laughs> oh, damn it. Ah, that's loud. Sorry about that. Uh, oh, here we go. Here's a Tom Waits interview from 79. Here we go. Satchmo Armstrong and Humphrey Bogart. Oh, man. This is an old interview with him, and he's already speaking with such a rough voice. I was on the plane from Paris for about 22 hours. His voice has only gotten more gravelly now. It's, uh, <laughs> like, it's really rough these days, but I. Like, it's just so funny that Pat Schmier got into a fight at a go-go show and, a, like, a riot breaks out when he gets into a fight with Tom Waits. And they asked him in the uh, show, the Foo Fighters show, like, if he won the fight and he wouldn't answer. Like, oh, you got your ass kicked by Tom Waits. That's great. <laughs> oh, that's so sh so great. It was, uh... 
Hmm. Yeah, you t- look in. Uh, <laughs> see if there's a YouTube <laughs> video of like GoGo's riot, but uh, maybe if I just like type into the Googles uh, riot at Go GoGo show. I bet it just like leads me to that. Uh, hmm. Is there really? I don't think there's a. I just want to know about this riot, man. <laughs> I want to know more about this. And don't get me wrong, I do like some go go's. I'll uh, bl- love me some Belinda Carlisle. But damn it, it doesn't seem like a riot should start out at a go go show. Uh. They do have a Showtime put out a GoGo's doc. Um, I guess, uh, yeah, I'm not really seeing anything about Troubadour. I guess people aren't really, uh, <clears throat> Troubadour? <laughs> um, no, I'm not really seeing. Damn it. Uh, here's a where they're talking about it a little bit. Maybe they'll it'll have some uh information on this uh <laughs> this fucking r- riot. Uh yeah, it says prior to the forums, Dave Grohl reminisced about the first time he ever stepped foot in the Troubadour eighty seven when his then band Scream snuck into the venue and somehow met Brett Michaels from Poison. I forgot about that. Then guitarist Pat Schmier, a L.A. native and punk icon from his time with the Germs, later remembered his first Troubadour show, The Go-Go's, and a punk rock riot broke out. Each of us have had pretty amazing experiences at this club, but there are lots of smaller venues like this around the world that need your support right now. But didn't even mention the Pat... They just gloss over the fact that he got into a fight with Tom Waits. They don't even mention that. Way to go, Rolling Stone. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm not uh not seeing it. I'd I'd love to know more of this story. I feel like I really need to beat Pat Schmier now just to ask him about that show, but I feel like he's not gonna tell me shit. He definitely didn't want to talk about it in that at that show. Uh <laughs> Hmm. But uh, I might uh, have to see that GoGo's unsealed documentary, Showtime. I don't have fucking Showtime, but I did. You got that fucking HBO Max now with my phone playing, so I'll get some good docs. I would like to watch that Helen Mirren do the uh, Catherine the Great. Reminds me of uh, being in old Russia. St. Petersburg, where they'd see, like, the Catherine the Great statue and such. But, uh, anyway, yeah, I think I'm good here. As, uh, yeah, yeah, I got really nothing else. Uh, as always, that is a kid in a wheelchair, not a trash can.